Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 264, Rebel Queen, The Gathering. Just because I haven't mentioned this for a while, you might like to know that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. We've got a load of brilliant podcasts and you can see them all at agorapodcastnetwork.com. You might be interested to know that one of our number, Heather Tasco, has now set up a Tudor radio station, no less the Tudor Radio Network. It's done with modern tech, of course, rather than Tudor tech, but all the programmes are about the Tudors. If you want to know more, go to TudorRadioNetwork.com and I'll put a link on the website to boot. The title of this podcast may have confused you. Possibly you were expecting groups of Highlanders getting together, comparing swords and trying to chop heads off. That was not really the kind of gathering I was thinking of, to be honest. I was sort of thinking of a panther, staring intently at its prey, beautiful in its perfection, gathering itself, tense, deadly, ready to spring. That sort of gathering. Can't help but see myself as the panther in this scenario. Just call me Walter. But I warble. So, let me explain myself. We are going to have a different week, you and I. This will not be a week of the humdrum variety, though I'm sure you lot rarely have such a week. This will be a different kind of hum. This will be a humdinger. No drums. You have been dragged, kicking and screaming, to one of the most keenly remembered occasions in English history even more powerful in the national memory than the establishment of the Darwent Pencil Museum. Namely, a few dramatic days in July 1553 that would have a profound effect on the life of a teenager called Jane Grey and indeed on the long-suffering Mary Tudor. Here's what we're going to do then. And before you ask, yes, there will be prizes. 
Today, then, we will have a retrospective on the life of Jane Grey to this point and take us to the edge of crisis. And then we will have an episode every day. Yes, every day. I can only imagine your joy. Each episode will deal with a single day, or at the most four days, in the drama that was the 9th of July 1553 to the 20th of July 1553. Each episode will be 15 minutes long or so. You know, I'm not a machine. And then Sunday, we'll have the denouement, the big reveal, the final countdown. It's probably just me, but it's impossible to say the word countdown without thinking of that song, isn't it? And then on the 16th, we'll have the story of Jane Grey after the final countdown thing. And on the 23rd of December, I then have an interview with a really clever person to review and reflect on the whole Lady Jane Grey Queen thing. That really clever person is Nicola Tallis. She's a historian and author of a book called The Crown of Blood. That's a great book about the life of Lady Jane Grey, which I used a lot during the making of this programme, so I can personally recommend it. And Nicola's donated a signed copy as a prize as well. This whole series will be called Rebel Queen. On the 9th of December, you can start the countdown to glory, because there are prizes, you see, as I mentioned. For everyone, you can enter a prize draw by entering a poll on website about Jane Grey, and thereby enter a prize draw with three prizes. There's Nicola Tallis's book, there's a George V thruppany bit that Robertson very kindly donated to me absolutely ages ago, and then there's a paper bouquet or ornament made by listener Mikel, who happened to be using an old book called The History of England and thought of us and donated a prize. How lovely is all of that? Members, of course, deserve something extra. So for you, I will release a thrilling quiz. Well, a quiz, which all of you may enter. And everyone who does the quiz may then enter the prize draw, the extra members prize draw, that is to say. And that prize will be a coin, once again, from Hall's Hammered Coins. It's an original coin from the reign of Mary I and her husband, Philip, which is reasonably cool. And meanwhile, yes, there's more. On the 9th of December, on History and Technicolor, Wolf and I will be reviewing the weepy known as Lady Jane with Helena Bonham Carter and all of that Carrie Elwes, you know. Make sure you're properly equipped with hankies or alternatively sick bags, depending on your personal characteristics. All of that is a lot to take in, but it's all explained on the website, thehistoryofengland.co.uk. So, hi thee, gentle listeners, hi thee. Now, some of you will already have spotted the obvious flaw in this plan, which is that if you are a regular listener to the History of England, you will already know much of the early life of Jane Grey, because I tried to sort of weave it in. At the time, I thought I'd been really clever. Hmm. But look, repetition is the mother of education. OK? Are you sitting comfortably? Then I shall begin. Picture the scene, then. We're at Bradgate Park in God's own county of Leicestershire in 1537. People with East Midlands accents are wandering around, calling it Braggy Park and wondering what on earth happened to their dogs. Tradition has it that there in the Lady Jane Tower, as it was renamed, Francis Brandon and Henry Grey were delivered their first child, Jane. So much for tradition, of course. It's equally been argued that she was born in late 1536 in London, so you can probably just scrub out the scene in your mind and picture a squalling baby girl. But look, I saw no reason not to work the noble East Midlander into the story. After all... We don't get much glory. The squalling baby was lucky enough to be born into one of the greatest families of the land. Henry Grey and Francis Brandon had been married at the tender ages of 16 in 1533 in what must have been something of a pushed-about-at-hooly, probably with Henry VIII in attendance, in fact. 
Henry Gray was the Marquis of Dorset, almost at the tippy-top of the order of precedence, a matter of some importance to your average Tudor, especially a courtier, of course. But even more impressively, James' mum was Frances Brandon, and Frances Brandon was the daughter of Mary Tudor, sister of Henry VIII, and some bloke, Charles Brandon, whatever. So, little Jane Grey had royal blood in her veins. Ain't no doubt about it, she was doubly blessed. Her mum, Frances, was born in 1517 and has not been well treated by history with some nasty words attaching themselves to her. Cunning and predatory. Relentless and permanently dissatisfied schemer. Arrogant and energetic, being some of the worst, alongside more double-edged things like hard riding. Ambitious. There is a suspicion that Frances and Henry did not have a terribly close relationship in the later years of their marriage, and Frances married with lightning and suspicious speed after Henry's death. Nonetheless, it's worth mentioning a few things. Frances's quick marriage after Henry was to a courtier called Adrian Stokes. Now, it may have been a meeting of minds, but part of her calculation was likely to be that Stokes was far too low-born for their children ever to be considered for the throne. Basically, their marriage took Frances completely out of any suspicion. It made her safe from the violence of Tudor politics. Furthermore, when the chips were down, we will find that Frances argues hard for the lives of her nearest and dearest, including hubby Henry. Another couple of interesting things about Frances, she was probably quite close to the Princess Mary. Mary was her cousin, they were close in age, and they knew each other well at court. Now, they may have developed very different religious views in later years, but there seems to have been nonetheless a genuine affection between them. One other thing was that in 1544, Henry VIII made a will, and in that will, he defined the succession to the throne. In said document, he excluded Francis from the succession. It jumped past her and went straight to her heirs. Now, people have wondered why. It could have been that Henry was just not keen on Francis, but equally... It could be that he realised that if Frances became queen, then her husband Henry Grey would be in a position of enormous influence, which it appears Henry would not have considered an entirely positive development. Not a positive development at all, in fact. The most likely explanation is that Henry, hung up as he was by a male succession, hoped that by the time the succession reached the Brandons' children, if it did, they would have had a boy. Which brings us to Henry Grey, otherwise known as Daddy as we will see, Henry wasn't necessarily a bad person, but if you were looking for a political or military leader of intellect, auctoritas and gravitas, you'd look straight through Henry. You'd look at Jane or Francis before Henry. As we'll see, Henry never really managed to hold down a steady job. There is an occasion for an example when Henry was appointed to the Northern Marches, which it has to be said must be one of the most difficult tours of duty on offer, but he pretty quickly chucks it in. His lack of authority, his lack of leadership will be an important factor at a particular crucial point in the story. Hollinshed's Chronicle paints him as a rather short-tempered, but at the same time a malleable man. And malleable will be something of a theme. His mum, in fact, wrote Thomas Cromwell when little Henry came to court as a lad, asking him to keep an eye out for him, because she too feared that he was, well, you know, malleable. Anyway, nonetheless, Grey had some good points, but of course we all have good points. Bountiful he was, and very liberal. Somewhat learned himself, and a great favourer of those that were learned. Void of pride and disdainful haughtiness of mind, more regarding plain-meaning men than clawback flatterers. 
and this virtue he had, he could patiently bear his faults, told him, though sometimes he had not that hap to reform himself thereafter. Well, that's nice then, though more Bertie Wooster than Arthur Wellesley, and the Iron Duke might have been better suited to the time, sadly, than one of the softer metals. Jane was one of three children at Bradgate. She was joined by her younger sister Catherine in 1540 and another Mary in 1545, so she's very much the big sister and there's no male heir around. As they grew up, Jane would have spent most of the day in education. She lived in a rich and formal household. Deference to parents would have been very strongly enforced. Quite rightly, of course, I entirely approve. Her parents, though, would have been reasonably distant figures with this quite formal relationship going on. Jane would have been surrounded by attendants and may have seen many of them much more frequently than she did her own folks. But her story would show that however alien to modern parenting was the Tudor approach, in some ways at least, the bond between Jane and her father in particular was quite strong. Interestingly, the Grey household was joined in 1544 for a while by the redoubtable Elizabeth Hardwick, of whom we'll no doubt hear much more in the future. And just to make sure I've not failed to make the point, the Greys were rich and important people. They would have looked up to very few. They were also evangelical, though the evidence is much stronger for Henry than for Francis, and that would also be a defining factor in Jane's life. And of course, religion is such a daily, ever-present part of life in Tudor households. The family had their own chaplain and tutors, and if you listen very carefully, there's an ever-present sort of tearing sound, like drawing sellotape from a reel, as the family chaplains constantly tear a strip off the greys for their card-playing gambling habit. Morality and behaviour was very much within the scope of your average churchman's range those days. The greys would have no truck with any idea that girls should not receive the very best education. And so the grey chaplains, like Dr Thomas Harding, was given the responsibility to make sure that Jane and her sisters were given the very best. And not just the resident chaplains, Braggy Park became a target for travelling academics, part of that network of learned relationships. So, for example, including men like Roger Ascham, tutor to the Princess Elizabeth, who would come and stay. We focus quite a lot on the academic side of things, but let's be clear that for girls, education would include the traditional skills too. Needlework, weaving, dancing, music, managing a household. It wasn't all Plato, Aristotle and Cicero. Bradgate would have had a permanent staff of musicians and Jane practised hard at the lute, for example. But whereas once that would have been the vast bulk of a girl's education, now there were languages, ancient and modern, writing and the classics. So what about Jane then? It just so happens that we have no surviving likeness of her, which is technically known as a bummer. There is a painting that was until recently thought to be her, but the people that know these things have concluded that actually it's Catherine Parr. Much later, when she was 16, there will be this description of her, though once more some doubts have been thrown on how contemporary it really was. This Lady Jane is very short and thin, but prettily shaped and graceful. She has small features and a well-made nose, the mouth flexible and the lips red. The eyebrows are arched and darker than her hair, which is nearly red. Her eyes are sparkling and reddish-brown in colour, her skin freckled and her teeth white and sharp. What is beyond argument, though, is that none of this education was wasted on Jane. She was an extraordinarily good scholar who really took to her studies, was constantly praised by her tutors. One of them indeed wrote, I do not think there ever lived anyone more deserving of respect than this young lady. 
Of course, it's possible said tutor was looking for a raise at the time, but there are plenty of corroborations of his view. Jane was a hard-working, talented scholar. But more than that, she appears to have enjoyed it. Jane would prove herself a dutiful daughter, but her learning was not just a result of a sense of duty. Far from it, she really liked it. Then, in 1547, the ten-year-old Jane was introduced to life outside the delights and wonders of Leicestershire and Charnwood Forest. As an heiress with a claim to the throne, Jane was hot property. And so Henry Grey had a visitation from the agent of a friend of his. The agent was one John Harrington, who came to visit on behalf of Thomas Seymour. With the proposal, it sounds a bit odd to us, to the modern ear. Why, he said, doesn't Jane come and live with their household, with Thomas and Queen Catherine Parr? Why doesn't Seymour take her into wardship? Now, as you may remember from a previous episode, this was not so unusual in England, though it horrified an Italian visitor. English parents often managed to offload their offspring onto other families in the hope that it would help them develop into fully rounded people and develop a network of contacts. This relationship, though, seemed to go further than normal. But what swung it here was a promise from Seymour, a promise that he'd get Jane a good marriage. When asked for specifics, he promised the very best. Marriage to the king. Plus, of course, there's money involved here. £2,000 Seymour was to pay for the wardship, and you can be sure he expected to turn a good profit on that very large outlay. Well, the grades were hooked, good and proper, and Jane joined the Seymour household. For Jane, life in the Seymour household seems to have worked pretty well. She was introduced to the Big Smoke, to the Seymour house on the Strand in London, although later moving back to the country to live in Sudley Castle. She seemed to like Thomas Seymour, as many did in fact. He was clearly a charming sort of bloke. And Catherine Parr. Catherine worked her magic on her. With her kindness, which worked so well with Henry VIII's children, with her evangelical erudition, which must just have reinforced Jane's academic and evangelical leanings. Sadly, of course, Catherine Parr soon died, and there's a bit of a tug of war over Jane. Her parents clearly believed she should come straight back home, and indeed insisted on it for a while. But Seymour persisted, and so she eventually went back to Seymour. Until then, he suffered the misfortune of having his head chopped off, which brought the debate to a definitive conclusion. During the toing and froing, there's an interesting letter from Henry Grey arguing that Jane needed her mother's guiding hand because she, as he wrote, shall hardly rule herself without a guide, lest she should for lack of a bridle take too much the head and conceive such an opinion of herself that all good behaviour that heretofore she has learned should either altogether be quenched in her or at the least much diminished. The language is a bit unfortunate, bridles and so on, but these are different times, and Catherine of Aragon had commissioned a book on the education of women which gave this advice, and the language is very similar. Especially the daughter should be handled without any cherishing, for cherishing mars the sons but utterly destroys the daughters, and men be made worse with overmuch liberty, but women be made ungracious, for they be so set upon pleasures and fantasies that except they will be well bridled and kept under, they run headlong into a thousand mischiefs. So, you know, the point was that the Greys were far from being harsh parents by the standards of the day. Their primary motivation was their duty to their children. They felt they would be failing their daughter if they didn't make absolutely sure she was ready for the life ahead of her and with the tools to succeed. From 1550, Jane and the Greys began to be much more present at court. 
1549 had ended, in fact, with a visit to the Princess Mary's Christmas celebrations. There's a little story from this time which illustrates the seed of evangelism in Jane's upbringing had now grown into a healthy plant. The story is preserved by John Fox and there's no other source, so it could be apocryphal, but in the light of later history, actually it's quite plausible. So, there was Jane being given a tour of the princess's house by one of Mary's ladies, Lady Anne Wharton, no doubt with National Trust card firmly in hand. They came into Mary's private chapel, all dressed up to the nines in traditional garb, no doubt. Anne curtsied to the altar where the host was exposed. Jane was all astonishment, looking around, and she asked if Lady Mary had come in and she'd missed her. Anne probably looked a bit surprised. No, I made my curtsy to him that made us all. Which, of course, gave Jane the chance to come straight back with, Why? How can he be there that made us all that be? And the baker made him. It's an interesting little incident. It's, you know, full of admiral evangelical zeal, great, but also just a little bit rude, even a bit arsy. Or, if you like, there's a bit of zealot or steel in this 12-year-old Jane Grey. By this stage, Somerset has lost his crown as Lord Protector and John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland, now holds the reign of power, as we've heard recently, of course. One of Northumberland's political allies was Henry Grey, Marcus of Dorset, who was also now promoted to Duke of Suffolk by the right of his wife, Frances. Grey's position on the council now meant that Jane Grey was also seen much more at court, and it is worth just remembering or reinforcing just how important she was given her royal blood. So one particular occasion where this was shown was the visit of the Scottish Queen Mary of Guise. Mary of Guise had been in France to marry her daughter Mary, you know, as in Queen of Scots, and she returned via London and was given a rousing and lavish reception, with all the members of the court decked out in their finery. And at the official reception, Jane's mother led the elite of England's womanfolk to meet the Scottish regent, with Anne ranking as fifth. So Jane is young but not obscure, inexperienced but by no means uninformed. She is part of the dance. Jane wouldn't have been at court constantly, though, of course. She's back and forth a bit, and in July or August 1550, she's back at Bradgate, where she was visited by the scholar Roger Ascham. Again, apologies for the repetition for those of you who have been here before, but it's a critical insight, this little visit. There is a word of warning to be made. Ascham was a big fan of learning without violence and severity, so he didn't like those educational leanings we've just talked about. It means he was sadly ahead of his time, so it's possible that he exaggerated what he talked about a little bit. Anyway, so Ashram came a-visiting, but he found the mistress and master of the house out hunting, having a good time. So he was shown in to see the eldest, Jane, who was sitting reading Plato, you know, as you do. Ashram made some small talk and then asked why she was inside rather than out in the park with her folks having fun. I wist all their sport in the park is but a shadow to the pleasure I find in Plato. Alas, good folk, they never felt what true pleasure meant. So look, I mentioned Arcy, and maybe there's a shadow of that here too. Jane had refused to go out with the parents, preferring her own company, and was prepared to show her independence to a visitor of her views, a little twinge of teenage rebellion to put alongside the sharp intelligence. But then the conversation turned a bit dark. When I'm in the presence of either mother or father, whether I speak, keep silent, sit, stand or go, eat, drink, be merry or sad, 
be sewing, playing, dancing, or doing anything else. I must do it as if it were in such weight, measure, and number, even so perfectly as God made the world, or else I am so sharply taunted, so cruelly threatened, yes, presently sometime with pinches, nips, and bobs, and other ways, that I think myself in hell. This needs to be seen in context before you condemn the Grey's parenting. There may be some exaggeration. The parenting theory of the day, as we've heard, was a little harsh and the Greys were convinced of where their duty lay. And as I said before, as time will show, the relationship between father and daughter at least turned out to be quite strong. And here a teenager is taking the chance to offload. But nonetheless, Jane needed a bit of steel in her soul and it is clear that the combination of evangelism and learning had taken deep root in Jane. Another of her modern biographers, who we're going to hear in a few weeks' time, Nicola Tallis, notes that Jane is unique, even above the much-vaunted intellectual skills of Elizabeth, in corresponding with the leading Protestant theologians of the day. Here Jane explains why the correspondence is so important to her. If you consider the motives by which I am actuated, namely that I may draw forth from the storehouse of your piety such instructions as may tend to both direct my conduct and confirm my faith in Christ my Saviour, your goodness cannot and your wisdom will not allow you to censure them. One more anecdote then and I'll draw it together and we can move back to the main narrative. Part of the parental duty that the Greys valued so much was to make sure Jane didn't become simply one of the vacuous peacocks of the court. Clearly, Jane had managed to avoid vacuous, but what about the peacock? The Greys were worried that Jane would grow to love clothes and finery too much. They were keen that their daughter would follow the example of the Princess Elizabeth, of whom it was written at this time. Her maiden apparel made the nobleman's daughter and wives to be ashamed to be dressed and painted like peacocks. They needn't have worried about Jane. This reminiscence would seem to have been written about Jane and an encounter again, this time with Princess Mary herself. This I know, that a great man's daughter receiving from the Lady Mary before she was queen goodly apparel of tinsel, cloth of gold and velvet, laid on with parchment lace of gold, when she saw it, said, What shall I do with it? Marry, said a gentlewoman, wear it. Nay, quoth she, that were a shame to follow my Lady Mary against God's word, and leave my Lady Elizabeth which followeth God's word. Another interesting quote, both for Jane's character and the identification of Mary and Elizabeth with different religions. Though given this was a reminiscence, who knows if that wasn't laid on later for effect. So what do we have here then? In 1553, we have a picture of a rather serious 16-year-old, even a bit priggish. I never really know what priggish means, but I guess here I'm thinking she's a bit holier than thou. There's a bit of sanctimoniousness going on here. To sit alongside impressive and even extraordinary intelligence and academic talent. She's a dutiful daughter, thoroughly traditional in that, but she has all the necessary accomplishments and is worldly enough to move in the corridors of power without going arse over tip. And while we're on us, she's not afraid to hand it out. She's got the courage of her convictions. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. 
Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. That's quite a lot about Jane. Sorry, once more, I'm guilty of warbling a bit. So, let's get back to court. To set the scene, Edward VI is badly ill, and in May 1553, his doctors have told the Duke of Northumberland and the King's Council that he is, without doubt, going to die. He is going up to meet the great toaster in the sky. According to Henry's will, the next in line would be the offspring of his loins, if you'll pardon the word loins, which is, I appreciate, an unattractive word. And this, even though at the moment they are illegitimate, both Mary and Elizabeth, both illegitimate. Mary has recovered her very own mix of courage and sanctimoniousness, priggishness, if you will, and has had a series of run-ins with the council and with Edward about her distaunch defence of the traditional religious practice, which elsewhere has been rolled back by Edwardian religious reforms. It is probably that fear of Mary's religion which led Edward and or Northumberland to change the succession as defined in Henry's will, though, as we've heard in previous episodes, it's complicated. Through June, the work had been done with council and the lawyers to replace Henry's will with Edward's device for the succession. And all the councillors had signed up to the device, despite, let it be noted, that it was quite clear Edward was dying And if they were Mary's supporters, all they would have to do was throw a sickie, hang on, and the problem would go away. Because of the toaster thing. So why did they go along with it? Probably because Edward was king, and he was following the precedence his father had set, that the king was well within his rights to determine the succession as he saw fit. And because, ironically, the device was closer to traditional common law than Henry's will, since Henry's will gave the succession to the illegitimate. Anyway... Those councillors had all signed up by the 21st of June, 1553, to a succession which had Jane next in line. So the $64,000 question is, was this the young King Edward's handiwork or the handiwork of Northumberland? Such a question would once have been greeted with an incredulous stare, a bit of nervous shuffling, slightly embarrassed even. Of course it was Northumberland. He was filled with nothing but naked ambition, we all know that. He was out to take control of the throne. He'd manufactured this by having his eldest son, Guildford Dudley, marry Jane on the 25th of May. However, again, as we've heard in earlier episodes, the revisionists have been at work. Historians now start off by noting that at very least Northumberland had other motivators than just naked greed and ambition. This marriage everyone talks about had been forged well before Edward was known to be seriously ill, and actually only when an alternative plan for Guildford Dudley to have married into the Clifford family had been rejected. So what we're seeing here about the marriage between Guildford and Jane was just a normal dynastic marriage. Northumberland was also clearly driven by a desperate need to rehabilitate his family name, which was dear to him, since his father had been condemned as a traitor by Henry VIII for essentially doing nothing more than what his boss, the king, Henry VII, had told him to do. And Northumberland was competent, and he was filled with a sense of duty. Unlike Somerset, he'd managed to do that which was required rather than that which was laid before him. And finally, while Northumberland did a fair bit of nest feathering, it was nothing on the scale of his predecessors, the likes of Cromwell, Wolsey, Somerset. So, the modern historian tends to exonerate Northumberland from these evil plots. But, look, we'll see what happens and you can make your own mind up. Of Jane and Guildford and their feelings for each other, we really know very little. 
There was traditionally a view that Jane resisted the marriage to Guildford, believing herself already promised, and had in fact to be beaten into it by her parents. But the evidence on which this is based has been discredited. In fact, we know almost nothing about Jane's relationship with Guildford. We just have to assume that this, by this point, Jane was the good Tudor daughter, did what she was told, and hoped her husband would turn out to be a nice chap after all. They were, of course, on the receiving end of a dynastic marriage, so it's very unlikely that it was Notting Hill or something. Nonetheless, Guildford Dudley appears to be no slouch in the attractiveness area, a comely, virtuous and goodly gentleman, as he was described, so no slobby shedcaster this. I imagine a fine turn of leg on the lad. He was probably a couple of years older than Jane, so 18 or 19 to her 16 or 17. So let's go for 1537 for Jane's birth date, so she's 16. The marriage on the 25th of May was a big, big society event, not just for the main protagonists, but because there were a number of others on the bill. There was also the 13-year-old Catherine Grey, marrying the son of the power broker William Herbert, Earl of Pembroke. There was the 8-year-old Mary Grey, being betrothed to Lord Grey of Wilton. Then there was Henry Hastings, marrying Jane and John Northumberland's daughter, Catherine Dudley. I mean, this is a crazy rich Brit super wedding, held at Northumberland's gaff on Durham House on the Strand. I hope Mr and Mrs had a good supply of hankies, not a dry eye in the house. It was an event, and no mistake. Durham House stretched down to the Thames, of course, and there'd have been a gate on the river, one such gate only still exists in Victoria Embankment Gardens, should you ever go and have a look. A mass of guests would have gathered in the chapel at Durham House, the rich and the powerful, the great and the not necessarily good. If he'd not been so ill, the king would have put his head round the door at some point. Jane's clothes would have included purple material given her by the king, a colour emphasising her royalty. Given that Northumberland was also an evangelical, no doubt they would have used Cranmer's new marriage service and vows. Once the vows had been taken, it was off to the Great Hall for a slap-up feast, and in the grounds there would have been masks and plays. No expense spared. The celebrity event of the year. As it happens, the magnificent feast gave quite a few people food poisoning, which is unfortunate, and Guildford was one of them retiring off to bed. So Jane did not have to go to the marriage bed for the traditional consummation. Instead, she went home, even though her younger sister and her hub did stay together despite being much younger, and they did head for the marriage bed, where I assume they did some crosswords and maybe ran a game of Scrabble or two. So, now we'll leave Jane and Guildford, where they are, and return to Edward VI. How kindly and courteously he received them, and how greatly he esteems them, wrote John Cheek on the 7th of June, after delivering books to Edward, who, despite his illness, his ceaseless coughing, and his inability to sleep without drugs, was still trying to study. Should a longer life be allowed him, I prophesy indeed that with the Lord's blessing he will prove such a king as neither to yield to Josiah in the maintenance of true religion, nor to Solomon in the management of the state, nor to David in the encouragement of godliness, Cheek continued. It's a good summary of the regret of those that surrounded Edward, a feeling of lost opportunity, of being robbed, being robbed of a talent mixed with the pathos of the death of someone so young. Outside in the wider world, rumours were circulating, but to a large degree, London remained ignorant of the extent of the king's illness. Jane Grey, meanwhile, had finally moved in with her new husband and family at Durham House on the Strand, 
so we're going to assume the marriage had now been consummated. At some point, sometime after 21st of June 1553, but probably not much after, her parents-in-law, the Duke and Duchess of Northumberland, drew her aside for a bit of a chat. It was a chat that didn't go well. The king's going to die, they said. There's no doubt about it now. Well, that was bad enough news. Interestingly, Jane then asked to go back to her parents' house, which doesn't say very much for her relationship with Guildford. The Duchess turned her down in the most delightful way, as Jane later recorded, saying that when God would be pleased to call the king to his mercy, not remaining any hope of saving his life, I had immediately to proceed to the tower, as I had been made his majesty heir to the throne. If this is really the way it happened, well, by golly, what a delightfully offhand way of passing across the news. Um, no, Jane, sorry I can't go back. No, no, sorry, that can't be done. Anyway, look, you've been made heir to the throne. Oh, gosh, sorry, didn't I tell you? Good Lord, look at me, what a goose I am. I'd forget my own head if it wasn't screwed on, sort of thing. It had something of a nuclear impact on Jane. She immediately fell ill, and despite a rearguard action by the Duchess, was finally allowed to escape back to the much more comfortable air of the Grey Estate at Chelsea, where she promptly tried to forget the idea that she might well become Queen. Meanwhile, the air around Edward was black with vultures. Emperor Charles V and on the other side the French were in egg-laying mode, desperate to come out of the situation to their advantage. You might think this was an entirely English affair, but both Empire and, to an extent, French were to have a significant impact on the outcome. Remember, first of all, that Charles V and Henry II of France were hmm, at war, so there's a surprise for you. Just like the glory days of Henry VIII, where one played, they looked for two, specifically for England, to tip the military and diplomatic balance against the other. The French saw an opportunity here. To make sure they missed nothing, they were at the English court in force, led by a man with too many vowels in his name, possibly called de Noailles. On the 26th of June, there was a surprisingly open conversation between Noailles and Northumberland. In this settled tete-a-tete, Northumberland assured the French ambassador that they had provided so well against Lady Mary's ever attaining the succession that the French need not worry about a pro-Hapsburg government in England. Yippee! cried Noailles. Inside, of course. Outside, he probably nodded gravely, maybe with a hint of diplomatic disinterest but offered French support for Jane and Northumberland. It's very interesting that the device was being spoken of so early. Meanwhile, the Charles V vulture was desperate not to go too early and mess up if Edward did that Lazarus thing, but deep down was very excited at the thought of a Catholic Mary on the throne of England. I mean, how good would that be? Charles heard about the French staking out the court, so on the 23rd of June he sent an embassy too to join Shiver, led by a man called Simon Renard. Their job was clearly and unequivocally to ensure the success of Mary. However, Charles had ruled out an invasion. He had his hands full with the French war, so brilliant diplomacy would have to be the tool. Go for it, guys. Now, given the lack of military muscle on offer, you might think that we can keep the diplomats out of the whole affair. But the point is, Northumberland didn't know that Charles would not commit troops. Fear of imperial intervention would remain strong throughout. By the 25th of June, poor Edward VI was unable to keep any food down. His cough was incessant, and the output of said coughing smelled to high heaven. His legs had swollen up, he was confined to lying flat all day. He was near the end, he was devoid of strength. I'm glad to die, 
he whispered to John Cheek. But then, hallelujah, a recovery, a full recovery. Call off the Jane Grey bonanza, everything's going to be okay. Phew. Now, the rumour mill was going potty, partly because the council were taking precautions at the palace, doubling the watch, that sort of thing. And you know, people aren't stupid. They knew something was up. A vast crowd assembled at the Royal Palace at Greenwich, anxious for news about Edward's health. So, some bright sparks suggested that since the king was on the mend, why not show himself to the people? Everyone would be satisfied, the balance of the universe would be restored. And so, on the 1st of July, Edward dragged himself out of bed and to the window to show himself to the people. Yay! Great! roared the crowd. That's brilliant! Thanks! Lovely! Woo-hoo! Yeah! When poor Edward had dragged himself back indoors, they all looked at each other and did that Fraser thing. We're doomed. Basically, Edward looked so thin and wasted, everyone thought he was already dead and someone was holding him up. The following day, the crowd gathered again. This time, no king appeared at the window. We're doomed, said the crowd. On the 6th of July, after 8 o'clock in the evening, a 16-year-old boy lay on a richly dressed bed and he was dying. He was surrounded by three of his privy chamber and two doctors. One of those by his side was the 24-year-old Henry Sidney. Sidney had been at Edward's side for much of his life, one of the king's companions. Henry Sidney will be a controversial figure in our story in the future, but for now, his only job was to ease the death of a friend. According to Fox, there was quite a speech from Edward. I'm not dissing it, but it's a bit like a Cecil B. DeMille set. You can always hear Charlton Heston grinding his teeth and Anne Baxter wailing in despair. O my Lord God, defend this realm from papistry and maintain thy true religion, that I and my people may praise thy holy name for thy son Jesus Christ's sake. Edward then turned towards his friend. Are you so nigh? I thought ye had been further off. We heard you speak to yourself, but what you said we know not. I was praying to God. Sidney held his companion's arm to comfort him, and Edward spoke again. I am faint. Lord, have mercy upon me, and take my spirit. And so died Edward VI, a much forgotten king, but one who had built a temple in England that no fire would be able to burn down, until the fire of secularism arrived, of course. Away from Greenwich, the rest of the world was doing what the rest of the world does. It was moving on, and it was gathering itself to fight for England's future. Northumberland and the council kept the news of Edward's death secret. Messages had been sent to Mary two days ago, asking her to come and visit Edward because he was so ill. The imperial ambassador reported home that Northumberland was still behaving with great courtesy towards Mary, as though nothing untoward was going to happen. And Mary had moved closer to London, to Hunsdon, so that she could be on hand so she had been expected in Westminster for some time. Where, Northumberland must have thought, where is Mary? Right, time to go and get her before she found out about her brother's death and decided to cause trouble. We will see how that goes for Northumberland tomorrow. For tomorrow, we start with the first of the daily episodes. It will be fun. Well, I hope it will be fun anyway. Members, remember to take notes. You'll need them for the quiz. So, see you all tomorrow, folks. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.